Next Sunday, I am excited to share on the topic of baptism. It will take place at 9 o'clock upstairs in in room 206 on the other side of that door right there. I'm going to open up the Bible with anyone interested in learning more. Um, Behind me, that screen goes up, and there's a baptismal right in there. And if you have not been scripturally baptized, we want to serve you in this way and and help you uh, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Uh, So that's next Sunday at at 9 o'clock. I'm looking forward to that discussion uh, with you. Uh, This morning, as we turn to God's Word, uh, we are opening up our Bibles to Matthew, and we are exploring the topic of privilege. Uh, You may know that not everyone uses their privileges for good. Oftentimes, privilege is used for the benefit of the self. I was doing some reading last week. I discovered that this takes place worldwide. In Russia, for example, those with great privilege use that privilege to combat traffic. There, in the busy cities or busy communities, they'll procure an ambulance to make their way through traffic. It's an ambulance for hire to make your way around town. Here in the States, a select few receive the privilege of a McDonald's gold card. You can use this card at all of the Golden Arches. Be careful, though. That's not going to be a privilege to those who use it too much. In China, the privileged can even avoid prison. When in hot water there, the wealthy may hire a body double, and this double goes and stands before the judge, and if convicted, serves time on behalf of another. So not everyone uses their privilege for good, and that's the point Jesus makes this morning. Now, you and I may not be racing around Bellingham in an ambulance, Nor are we hiring a body double to go before the judge on our behalf. Hopefully because we don't need to, not because we haven't thought of it. (laughs) But the fact remains that we are indeed privileged. You and I as Christians are extremely privileged. You know, for you and I, the, the veil has lifted. And God has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. For you and I, God has given us forgiveness fully and freely for all of our sins. For you and I, we've been adopted into the family of God. We've reserved, been reserved an eternity in heaven with Jesus Christ. We've been given the Holy Spirit who forever indwells us. And we've been given gifts to use for the kingdom of God. The question for you and I is, what do we do with that? What do we do with this privilege? Today, this week, use your privilege to bear fruit for God. We have one point this morning, and that's it. Use your privilege to bear fruit for God. Now, as I mentioned, we return today to the Gospel of Matthew. And we concluded our summer series in the book of Genesis. We now pick up where we left off months ago. It's Matthew chapter 22, excuse me, Matthew chapter 21, verse 33. 
And it's here that we are entering the final days of Jesus. The religious leaders hate his presence. They detest his authority. In chapter 21, Jesus is in Jerusalem. This is their turf. This is their city. They hold all authority. But this new king has come along. And he's invaded their kingdom. When Jesus arrived, he received what we might call a royal treatment. The crowds cheered his kingship, and they cheered his authority. When Jesus entered the temple, he asserted that authority. He went through the temple, breaking up the buying and the selling. He overturned the temple commerce. And then, when pressed for an explanation, after all, these religious leaders want to know by what authority he comes to do these things, Jesus tells the religious elite, quote, tax collectors and prostitutes will enter the kingdom of God before you. This is the backdrop for today's passage. God had given the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders, he'd given them a stewardship. He'd given them privilege. They were to lead his kingdom and to bear fruit, to shepherd his people and teach them and love them. But they used the kingdom of God to establish their own. Jesus pronounces judgment. He speaks to this great sin. And he does it through a story. Jesus tells a parable. And in our parable this morning, I see four main movements. We'll use them as markers along the way. Jesus begins with the narration or the story itself. He then provides an invitation, an explanation, and we see lastly a reaction. In verses 33 through 39, there's the narration. This is a story Jesus tells to warn. And he tells a parable. Picking up in chapter 21, verse 33. Jesus speaks. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. The vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. But afterward, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard 
and killed him. This story today is the second of three parables Jesus teaches. All three of them indict the Jewish leaders of his day. Now, as a reminder, a parable takes an observation from everyday life, and then it teaches some spiritual truth. In this case, Jesus takes a vineyard. He uses the vineyard as, as a story. Some say that a, a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Now, the setting for the parable would have been familiar, not only because of the vineyard, but also because of the scriptures. And what I mean by that is that this whole parable is, is brought out from Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Jesus quotes Isaiah 5 as the foundation for his story. And there in Isaiah, as here in Matthew 21, the vineyard represents Israel. In God's love and in God's grace, he gave Israel all she needed to grow and to flourish as a people. We might say that God gave them privilege. Yet in Isaiah 5, this vineyard brought forth bitter grapes. It did not produce. And God judged it by destroying it. Well, the end result is not the result here in Matthew 21. Jesus uses a different type of an ending for his story. You see, something else happens in this story pertaining to greed, pertaining to a sinister type of corruption. You heard that in the treatment of the landowner's slaves. Now, the account begins well enough. This vineyard is amazing. I mean, here the vineyard owner places a wall around the vineyard. That means he's protecting it. The vineyard owner digs a wine press. This is smart economics. He can press all of his grapes right here on site. This vineyard owner builds a tower. There's more protection, and there's shelter, and there's shade. This vineyard is making the cover of a magazine, food and wine, with a picture of this landowner. This owner invested great effort and great expense into his vineyard. This vineyard had every advantage and every privilege one might want. So you can imagine the excitement and the anticipation. In verse 34, when the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. The landowner and the tenants, they would have made a contract together. This would have been a very, uh, very great deal for the tenants. They would live on site. They would um, farm the vineyard. They would receive a portion of the crops and give the landowner a portion back. It might be a way of describing a sharecropping or a tenant farming. In verse 35, the vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. These are very wicked farmers. The word for beat will be the same used word, same word used of the treatment Jesus will receive. They're not satisfied with that. There's yet another man, a different man. They kill him. 
and to pile torture on top of murder, they literally crushed the air out of a third by stoning him to death. The parable reveals a second delegation. They're treated the same way as this first delegation. And finally, the owner sent his son. They will respect my son. Surely the son. The son who comes in the image of the father. But they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. In verse 38, when they see him coming, they conspire in their hearts to murder So what is Jesus teaching in all this? Well, let's walk through this. The landowner is God. The vineyard is the nation of Israel. The tenants are the Jewish religious leaders. Remember, they were to shepherd and they were to serve the people of Israel. They were to to maybe care for them or tend them as a vine grower might do a vine. The slaves, those who come along, those who come along to collect, they are the prophets. In the Old Testament, God's prophets were often called servants, God's servants. If you have an English Bible, you're following along. Um, These words are used interchangeably in this text. It could be servants or slaves. And the Son, well, the Son is Jesus. You see, in verse 38, he's called the heir. The other tenants, these are going to be church leaders or the church. You see, God planted Israel, and God gave her fabulous blessings. Listen to how Moses describes what God has done. This is Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 32. Indeed, ask now concerning the former days which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth. And inquire from one end of the heavens to the other. Has anything been done like this great thing? Or has anything been heard like it? Has any people heard the voice of God speaking from the midst of the fire? Have you have heard it? And have they survived? Or has a God tried to go to take for himself a nation from within another nation by trials, by signs and wonders, and by war and by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and by great terrors. Has anyone done this as the Lord your God has done for you? To you it was shown that you might know the Lord, that he is God, and there is no other beside him. That passage alone, read without comment, That ought to drive the heart to worship and obey this God. But even if, even when, a nation might get a little sideways, perhaps Israel might not follow so consistently, God graciously sends along prophets, people to call her back, to warn her, to speak to her. God sends his spokesman. He sends Jeremiah, who's beaten and placed in stocks and thrown in a cistern. And God sends Isaiah, quite possibly sawn in two, 
And God sends Uriah executed with a sword. And God sends Zechariah murdered in the temple court. God sends his son, Jesus, plotted against, taken outside the city, and executed. How does his audience interpret this? How do those standing in earshot handle this parable? In verses 40 and 41, Jesus gives an invitation. He invites them into the parable. Verse 40, Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? They said to him, He will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. Jesus never wasted a question. Verse 40 is meant to reveal the heart. It reveals a good deal about these religious leaders, who they saw themselves as in the parable, how they viewed themselves in all this. Were they the tenant farmers? Those who had received every advantage yet turned that privilege into greed? Certainly they were not them. Were they the servants sent by the landowner? They were mistreated and displayed weakness? Probably not. Were they the landowner? Recipients of ingratitude for all that they've done? Their answer seems to reflect this. They call for justice. Justice for that landowner, for all of his goodness and all of his grace. And as they uttered the final word of verse 41, they condemn themselves. They issue an indictment with their name emblazoned across the top. They are the wretches, they have every privilege. They have killed the prophets and plotted against the air. They have taken the kingdom of God and made it their own. Paul would later write in Romans chapter 9, verse 4, To them belong the adoption as sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises. These religious leaders do not yet know that they speak of themselves. And Jesus is not done yet. In verses 42 through 44, he now brings about application. He's going to bring an application of Scripture, and he's going to apply this parable to that audience. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, Did you never read the Scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people, producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Jesus goes back to the Old Testament again and pulls from Psalm chapter 118. 
And in this psalm, David is exalting the triumph of God. God triumphs over the nations, and he then establishes his own. And God defies the norms by building upon the chief stone, the stone rejected by the builders. Now you need to know that throughout the Old Testament, this imagery of a stone or a rock that is often speaking about God. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 18, excuse me, 32, verse 18. You neglected the rock who begot you, Moses says, and forgot the God who gave you birth. Psalm 18, verse 31. For who is God but the Lord, and who is a rock except our God? And as we exit the Old Testament and enter the New Testament, this imagery of a rock or a stone now applies to Jesus. In Ephesians 2, verse 20, God's household is built on the foundation of the apostle and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And Peter, in the book of Acts, will get up and preach to a Jewish audience. Jesus is the stone which was rejected by you. Notice those two words, by you. Jesus may have spoken in nonspecific ways in our passage this morning, but Peter does not mince words. He speaks directly to that audience, and he says, by you. The stone which was rejected by you, the builders, that became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, he continues, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. It's also worth considering how Jesus speaks of himself in this passage. He refers to himself as the stone. Now, that may not be as obvious to us in English, but commentators have noted that in the original Aramaic that Jesus would have spoken, the original Hebrew, there's a play on words happening here. For example, in verse 38, the word for son is the word ben. In verse 42, the word for stone is eben. So to the ear of the Hebrew, Jesus is saying that the son in the parable is the stone of Psalm 118. Jesus also refers to himself as the son of God. In Psalm 118, God selects the choice stone. Said alongside our parable this morning, Jesus is the, the chief stone. And lastly, he refers to himself as a prophet. Notice in the parable, the son is the last in line among those sent by the landowner. Jesus is the last in line among those sent by God prophets to speak to his people. Now, why is this significant? Because God sends the prophets, and because the prophets are never wrong. This one, Jesus, said unequivocally, the kingdom will be taken from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. Verses 45 and 46, it's our fourth and final movement. It's a reaction. And this is a reaction 
of conviction. The religious leaders stand guilty of abusing their privilege. In verse 45, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. When they sought to seize him, they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. The kingdom is going to be given to a new people. In verse 43, some of your Bibles read nation, given to a new nation. Now keep in mind, to date, in the time of Jesus, to the date of this parable, God's kingdom has been centered in Israel. But it would now include a people from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues. We should note here that the church does not replace Israel. That's not what Jesus is teaching. Verse 45 points to Jewish leadership. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parable, they understood that he was speaking about them. And that means that his original audience... They knew that Jesus was speaking about them as religious leaders. They've been unfaithful to their charge. They've been poor stewards. They've abused their privilege. But even if it refers to the nation as a whole, and there are passages that indicate this, God's promise is still irrevocable. God's promise to Israel, to the nation, is irrevocable. Romans 11.25, a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. All sorts of people who are not of Jewish blood are being saved this very hour. God is bringing them into his kingdom. Romans 11 uses the word grafting. He's grafting them into this vine. And then later in verse 26, Romans 11, all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. God is not done with his elect Israel. And you and I rejoice at this. But the religious leaders rage. This whole concept, this very idea that they somehow missed the Messiah, that's impossible. Just think about it. What what is Jesus saying about them in verse 42? He's calling them blind builders. Now, a cornerstone was the most important stone in the foundation of a building. It was was perfectly square. The entire building depended upon this stone. Have you ever tried building and you were just a little bit off when you began? And then you're 40 feet down the line and you realized how significant that is? If you haven't, come on over sometime and I'll show you some things I've made. (laughs) This stone was extremely important, especially without all the technology that we had in our day. But for a builder in this time, a builder, to have one, to possess it and then pass it over, to put it on the pile with the rest of the ordinary stones. These stones could be used anywhere else in the building. They're very ordinary. That would be a huge fail on the builder's part. And Jesus says that this most important stone, it became a stumbling stone for the religious leaders. And Jesus says that they did not use their privilege 
to bear fruit for God. And using this parable this morning, Jesus revealed that their time is drawing to a close and that the kingdom of God is going to bring others along, people outside of their leadership, people we might call the church in our day, Christians, and they're going to enter the kingdom of God through Christ. I want to ask you this morning if you have received this kingdom, if you've entered it, if you've joined the kingdom of God. God has made his son, Jesus, the cornerstone of his kingdom. He builds his entire kingdom upon Christ. This stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. You see, God's design for his kingdom, it defies human wisdom. Jesus as king, yet he came down from heaven. He took on human flesh and he lived in poverty. That's a stumbling block for people. Jesus is sinless, yet he took upon himself the sins of many and died for them. That's a stumbling block for people. Jesus is God, yet he died on a cross for you. If you, like these religious leaders, also reject him, you will spend eternity separated from him in a place called hell. But if you believe upon him and you turn from your sins, you will spend eternity in the kingdom of God with Jesus reigning as heir. He has taken his kingdom. And he's offered it to you right now, this morning. And all of the advantages and all of the privileges that belong to his kingdom, they belong to you by believing upon Jesus. If you are in the kingdom this morning, if you've received these advantages and these privileges that Jesus gives, produce the fruit of it. Use your privilege for the kingdom of God. There's a story from last century told of, of an heiress. Her name was Barbara Hutton. And she was heiress to the, to the Woolworth fortune. Uh, Frank Winfield Woolworth uh, prospered in retail. He uh, was the one who pioneered the nickel and dime stores of the 1900s. By age 21, this is 1933, Barbara had uh, held $50 million to her name. In modern-day currency, that's $1.1 billion dollars. But her privilege, it it went downhill from there. During the Great Depression, she threw a party so big that she literally had to leave the country until the outcry died down. She married seven times, including two princes, one count, and one Hollywood actor. And as a compulsive shopper, she accumulated mountains of stuff, even the belongings of Marie Antoinette. And sadly, by the end of her life, she had little to show for it. She bore very little fruit, and she wasted her privilege. And this morning, I tell you that every Christian has the spiritual equivalent to that fortune. We have all of the advantages and all the privileges we could possibly need. I mean, just think about it for a moment. In each of our lives, has God not planted a vineyard? 
in your life? He plants, and he cares, and he waters. He's fully invested in you. Has God not erected a wall in your life? This morning, God protects you and guards you. You sleep in complete safety through the night. Has God not dug a wine press in your life? He's given you gifts to be used for the glory of his kingdom. And has God not built a tower in your life? A place of shade and comfort and refuge. And has God not sent his servants in your life to feed you and teach you the word of God? And has God not given you his son in your life who redeems you and who sanctifies you? You see, this morning you have a a mountain of privilege to produce fruit for the kingdom of God. And just to be clear about this fruit, this, this fruit that we will produce, this is a result of God's planting. When we bear fruit for God, we don't do it to earn heaven. It's not as though we're picking off fruit and putting it in a basket and saying, look, God, I've earned enough. Let me in. That's not how it goes. God has planted already in our lives by believing in the gospel. And as a result of that, we go and we bear fruit. It's also worth noting that our fruit, it grows by God's watering. You and I, we must rely upon God's power for this. We must rely upon God's grace for this. This is not of ourselves, it is of God. And lastly, we need to understand that there is a variance. The fruit that we produce, it's, it's, it's multiple, it's varied. It's not just deeds alone, I think we might think of it that way, and that is true, but it's so much more. Galatians 5 verse 22 tells us that, that the fruit of the Spirit are a series of attitudes or dispositions even affections. I'll tell you, when we get the inside right, when the inside, the heart aligns, boy, there's all kinds of things we can produce for the glory of God. You see, the kingdom of God this morning, it's yours. It's yours in abundance with all of its privileges. And it's yours to go and produce fruit for the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for making us members of your kingdom. Thank you for making us citizens, for grafting us into your vine, for making us your children by by adoption. Oh, I pray for us this morning, Lord, that you would bless us to see our privilege, to praise you for it, but then also to use it to bear fruit for you. Lord, I pray that each of us would see how special we are to you, what gifts you've given us. Thank you for the privileges that you've blessed us with. There are many. May we use them for your great name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.